Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 11, 2012, and my guest is Gary Taubes. His latest book is Why We Get Fat. Gary, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you, Russ. Now, you were a guest on this program uh, back in 2011 in November, and we talked about your first book, uh, uh, your excuse me, your earlier book on a similar topic, which was Good Calories, Bad Calories. This latest book covers some of the same ground, but in a more accessible way. And when we talked about that first book, we focused on how public opinion and public policy is shaped by research that you argued was mistaken. And I saw a lot of parallels between that research and the evolution of policy in the area of nutrition and health to research and policy and economics, problems of groupthink, confirmation bias. In this conversation, I want to focus, as the second book on the topic does, on the what we know about weight loss uh, and in the what you might think of as the the micro side of of the uh, weight loss equation and diet and nutrition question, the economics analogy here is the challenge of understanding a complex system where it's difficult, if not impossible, to hold one factor constant and isolate the impact of other factors, both in practice uh, and in uh, and in research. So let's start by asking the fundamental question. Uh, it would seem that all we need to know about weight loss in the human body is captured by the slogan, eat less and exercise more. That would seem to be undeniably true. And then the end of the discussion, that if we want to lose weight, we could do one or the other, both ideally. And I think that's what most people try to do when they want to lose weight. They try to eat less and exercise more. And yet your book begins with challenging that uh, conventional wisdom. Uh, what do you see is wrong with that simple and seemingly compelling phrase? Yeah, um, virtually everything. Uh, the short answer, I, and I would have, yeah, I believed in this a decade ago before I started my research. And then, uh, yeah, but you could think of obesity in, in one of two different ways. So the eat less, exercise more idea comes out of this idea that obesity is what the research they'll call an energy balance problem. <clears throat> you, know, you take in more energy than you expend. That energy has to go somewhere, so our bodies stick it in the fat tissue. And that's pretty much all you have to know. And if you want to get the energy out of the fat tissue, you just have to increase your expenditure, decrease your intake, and then your body will take the energy from the fat tissue and burn it. And it's this incredibly simplistic idea that basically comes down to you know, we are thermodynamic systems and like we could be a black box for all anybody cares. It doesn't matter what's happening inside. It just matters that more energy goes in, you get fat, more energy goes out. And as I was doing my research for my books, I realized that, you know, this was uh, actually, a, it's a hypothesis and it was a controversial hypothesis up until the 1950s, 1960s. And pre-World War II, when all meaningful medical science, all meaningful science in virtually all fields was done in Europe. 
the Europeans had a different conception of what caused obesity, and they thought of it as a sort of hormonal regulatory defect, just like any other growth disorder. And so you had your fat tissue was regulated by a whole complex system of hormones and enzymes and uh, receptors and other central nervous system factors. And if that regulation gets out of whack, you will start getting fatter. And if you start getting fatter, if your fat tissue starts growing, you'll take in more energy than you expend. So dysregulation of the fat tissue is the cause, and this disturbance in energy balance is the effect in this kind of pre-World War II way of looking at it. And the problem is the you know, World War II comes along, the European, the German and Austrians in particular, the, their school of research on this evaporates. Unlike physics, where we embraced all the European scientists who were chased to the U.S. in medicine, nutrition, public health, we wanted nothing to do with them. And post-World War II, this idea vanishes. And it's replaced with the idea of obesity as an eating disorder and basically gluttony and sloth. And what I did in my research is I said, look, if this idea was right, if these Germans and Austrian researchers who were pushing this hormonal regulatory defect notion were right, how would the world have played out since then? And you see by the late 1950s, early 1960s, researchers, physiologists and biochemists figure what regulate, out what regulates fat tissue, and it turns out to be fundamentally the hormone insulin that, that puts fat in our fat tissue. And as soon as you've um, identified insulin as the regulatory culprit, then it's the carbohydrates in our diet that determine insulin levels, independent almost of total calories. And now you've got a hypothesis of obesity that say carbohydrates make you fat, and they do it by raising insulin levels, which, not total calories. Which, which in turn, those higher insulin levels uh, cause fat from our diets to enter into our bodies. Is that the right way to think of that causal... Well, that's one way. When you eat uh, a mixed meal, the fat from the meal gets stored in your fat tissue. And this is one of the reasons why people always wanted to blame uh, you know, dietary fat, obesity on dietary fat. So your body basically, when you eat a mixed meal with fat, protein, carbohydrates, your body wants to burn off the carbohydrates because they get dumped into your bloodstream as glucose. Your glucose is blood sugar. Your blood sugar levels start to rise. This has toxic effects to various cells. So you, you secrete insulin in part to control your blood sugar. And one of the ways it does it, it facilitates the entry of the glucose into your muscle cells so they could burn it. But it also locks the fat away in your fat tissue. Because he's kind of saying, well, we'll deal with the fat later. Let's burn the carbs now. And then and when carb, glucose levels start coming down, insulin levels start coming down, the fat is released from the fat tissue and the muscle tissue starts to oxidize it for fuel. In an ideal world, you've got a system where you eat a meal, you store fat, you burn carbs, then the carbs, you burn through the carbs, now you start to burn the fat and after you've gotten your fat back down to where it was originally, you get hungry and eat again. So it's a beautifully orchestrated system and it's this hormone insulin that runs it all. But if insulin signaling starts getting out of whack, and the idea is that the kinds of carbohydrates we eat today are new to our species, from brand relatively new to brand new, and we haven't evolved to deal with them, and they cause various 
disorders of insulin singling that, in effect, work to keep insulin high. And if you're keeping insulin high, you're keeping fat locked up in the fat tissue rather than burning it, and you end up in this system where sort of every day you store a little more fat than you should. And even if it's the dietary fat that's being stored, it's the carbohydrate content of the diet that's causing the effect. And this is all just sort of basic 1960s level endocrinology and physiology. And one of my challenges as a journalist and someone writing about this and now kind of a, you know, a proponent of this idea is to get across the idea that we actually solved the obesity epidemic in the 1960s. And all we needed were 1960s era medicine to do it. And technology to do it. And the problem is we decided that solution wasn't convenient and we threw it out and decided to ignore it. And that's when we get to the situation we've been in ever since. So if I eat uh, lots of calories and watch a lot of television and um, sit on my couch, but the kind of calories I eat are protein oriented and vegetables that are not starchy and therefore I have low carbohydrates, you are suggesting that I will not get fat. Yeah, although I would, I will, yes, exactly. Although I would uh, edit that to say if I'm eating, the, the, you actually, what you want to eat is a, a moderate protein, high fat diet. Um, fat is the one nutri- nutrient that does not trigger insulin secretion. So if you're already overweight, obese, or type 2 diabetic, the protein in the diet can actually be, protein levels should also be kept relatively low. Although you could eat a meat-rich diet and still not get a lot of, you know, more than 15, 20% of your calories from protein. But yeah, the idea is you could be sedentary, you can eat a lot, and if you don't have these offending carbohydrates in your diet your body will metabolize the energy that you take in and it will do it perfectly fine and it will not just stick it in your fat tissue and make you fatter. And similarly... And that almost, that, that's an idea that's exceedingly hard for the, the, the establishment researchers to buy or understand. And similarly, you're going to argue that if I have a low-calorie diet of, say, uh, being a... Uh, a male of 57 years old, if I, let's say, eat 1,500 or 1,800 calories a day, but they're uh, potatoes, candy bars, and um, uh, bread, I can be obese despite my low-calorie input intake. Yeah, yeah. And again, one of the things I do in Why We Get Fat, the very first chapter uh, includes a list of populations that had high levels of obesity um, coincident with extreme poverty. And this is, I just did something that I always felt the, the research community themselves should have done, but never bothered. You know, we have this idea that it's the toxic environment we live in today that causes obesity. So that toxic environment is fast food joints uh, at every corner, large portion sizes, energy dense foods, whatever that means, yeah. you know, and this, 
uh, no mode, no uh, reason to be physically active. So we don't let our kids walk to school anymore. We're always getting in the car. We don't even roll down our own car windows anymore. And so we have this combination of too much food. It's too available. It's um, huge portion sizes and not enough reason to be physically active. And that's why we get fat. And what I did is I just looked for counterexamples, which to me is basic science, right? So let's find popula- see if we can find populations at high levels of obesity and had none of this toxic environment. And I found about a dozen of them. You know, I probably found most of the ones that had been studied, but I wouldn't be surprised if there are papers hidden in journals here sure. and there that found, you know, identified others. These go back to, you know, the Pima Indians in 1902, where a Harvard anthropologist who wrote the seminal text, lived with the Pima for six months, wrote the seminal text on them. Um, the Pima had gone through 20 years of famine from the 1870s, 80s, early 1890s. And here they were half a dozen years out of their famine period. They're on a government reservation. Um, and this Frank Russell, this anthropologist, comments about the high level of obesity in the tribe. And he has a photo of an obese Pima woman in his, in his book, which was published in 1905-1906, and he calls her Fat Louisa. And he points out, as did another uh, Smithsonian anthropologist who traveled through the area, that most of the obesity is in the women, and the women are work, you know, they, they were basically treated like uh, beasts of burden. They carried and they did most of the farming. They carried anything that the, um, you know, that the, that that the, the the tribe wasn't loading on mules or, or, or horses. And so if physical activity was a, a way to prevent obesity, and this is what this uh, Smithsonian anthropologist, or he went on to become head of physical anthropology at, anthropology at the Smithsonian, what he commented was if, if physical activity made any difference, why was it the women who were fat when the women did far more work than the men did? And... You see the same trend, 1928, with Sioux, uh, Reservation Sioux on a, a South Dakota uh, Crow Creek Reservation, and very high levels of obesity in coincidence with extreme poverty, um, deficiency diseases. Uh, in the 19, early 1960s, studies in Trinidad, um, MIT nutritionists calculated that the the diet was giving no more than 2,000 calories a day, and it was 21% fat, and yet they described the obesity population, obesity problem among the females as, as an extreme medical problem. And, you know, it goes on. Chilean construction workers in the 1960s, Mexican-American agriculture, uh, uh, oil field laborers in the early 1980s, and these are poor, hardworking people, sometimes living you know, again, on near starvation levels of food and yet still with high levels of obesity. So the question I ask in the book is the question I think everyone should ask is, you know, why were they fat? Because if we can figure out what made those populations fat, we'll probably have the answer to what makes us fat. What we know is that they didn't have computers, they didn't have video games, they didn't have iPads or cars, you know, or any kind of labor-saving devices, and in some cases, they worked a lot harder than any of us ever do. So, you know, what was going on to dysregulate their fat tissue? And the answer is? Uh, One thing that was common to all these populations is they were relatively new to refined grains like white flour and sugar. You know, even the Pima... um, 
trading posts come into the Pima territory after the 1850s and the trading posts are selling sugar and white flour and the Pima are living on government rations and 50% of the government rations actually mostly white flour and some sugar. So you, again, you can argue that you add these refined grains and sugars to a population, you're going to get obesity, diabetes, and the diseases that associate with them. And the problem with our toxic environment today is not that we don't get enough physical activity, it's not that there's too much saturated fat or anything else, but that there's too much sugars and refined grains in our diets. And if you get rid of those, which is what you do fundamentally on a low-carb diet, you reverse the problem. When I read your book, I, I heard that argument, but I heard a subtler version of what's wrong with calories in, calories out, uh, that I found ex- extremely interesting and, and reminded me a lot of, of the economic way of thinking. So I want to take a couple of examples from the book, and you can talk about how they relate to this, um, to the um, endocrinology and the, the what's going on in the body. Right. So you have the fascinating example. You have a picture of your son, and as you point out, most kids um, eat a lot when they're growing. Most kids eat a lot, uh, and we would never say – oh, my kid's growing because he's eating more than he exercises, so therefore he's able to grow. We say he's having some kind of hormonal um, growth spurt, and as a result, he's hungry. And so causation isn't just complicated. It's actually the opposite of the way we often think about the relationship between eating and, and obesity. With eating and obesity, we tend to think, well, I eat too much, so I get fat. In fact, there's an argument to be made that it's really because I'm fat, I eat a lot, I'm hungry, I'm, I have an urge to, to eat. And the part, the psychological part that I, of that that I find interesting is, is that, I, and I think this varies a great deal by individuals, so at least I presume it does, and we, we can talk about that. But I know for myself, um, you know, the joke about the line about you can't just eat one potato chip, which was a marketing slogan. Uh, is very true for me. It's not just that it's hard to eat one. There's no number of potato chips that satiate me. Uh, there's no number of French fries where if someone said, have another plate, <laughs> that I would say, no, 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 I, they don't appeal to me. I've had plenty. They're always appealing to me uh, when I've had some. When I don't eat them, they're still appealing, but in a different way than if I've had a few. And so that causal uh, relation appears to be the opposite of what actually uh, is the way we tend to think about it. Well, and, and this is, there are a lot of examples of this that I point out in the book. I mean, the growing child, and here again, I'm just channeling way the, the way the pre-World War II Germans and Austrians thought about this problem. And the growing child was one of their um, uh, uh, metaphors. I wanted, um, an argument that I make in the book is that in every growth system, that you can imagine. Growth is the cause, and an increase in in, uh, intake of nutrients is the effect. So in the growing child, you know, the child's brain, uh, pituitary gland is secreting growth hormone. The growth hormone is stimulating something called insulin-like growth factor, and those are driving the growth of cells and tissues. And compensating for this, the body then needs more energy to, to both build these tissues and for the energy required for the building, and so the kid is hungry. 
And often you hear the, the same thing when your children are growing, that they're lying around the house all day long. You know, my son is eating me out of house and home, and he's lying around the house all day long. And the reason he's doing that is because he's going through a growth spurt, and that growth spurt is driven by hormones. And his um, body is... You know, is, elephants is, eat more than puppy dogs. And the reason they do, or young elephants eat more than young dogs, and the reason they do is because they are growing bigger. Yeah, so there, any system you could imagine, and when a tumor is growing, uh, that tumor's taking in more energy than it expends, but we don't really care that that's why, that it's, ta- it's obvious it's taking in more energy than it expends because it's growing. What we care about is what uh, genes, oncogenes, tumor suppressor genes in that tumor are broken that are driving it towards this unfettered growth. And the fact that if we could shut off the fuel supply to the tumor we could kill it is irrelevant it doesn't mean that it's the excess fuel that's driving the growth it means the growth is creating a sort of excess demand for fuel and the tumor part of what's happening with the mutations that drive the tumor growth are all these mutations that allow it to take in more fuel from its environment to fuel the growth. So the fundamental argument I'm making is, yeah, obesity is, should be this. We should think of it the same way. The reason oh, people get, are hungry, the reason they tend to eat more when they're getting fatter is because the foods they're eating are stimulating the growth of their fat tissue. Those potato chips, the french fries, they stimulate insulin secretion. The insulin stimulates fat accumulation in the sense that it starts storing all the excess glucose fatty acids in your bloodstream, locking them away in your fat tissue. So your fat cells are expanding, and the rest of your body perceives that as a kind of absence, relative dearth of metabolic fuels to run the body, and so you respond by wanting to continue eating or to eat more. The French have this wonderful phrase that the appetite comes with the meal, and you've probably thought about this. I think about this once I heard that phrase, that you might sit down to a meal and not be hungry. And then once you have a few bites of the appetizer, which is often a carb-rich um, creation uh, created to stimulate your appetite. Yeah, it's, That's called, what an it does. it's called an appetizer. <laughs> For a reason, yeah. And then suddenly you're hungry. And so, you know, the... Even though you would think that with each successive bite you would get more satiated and less hungry, that's not actually what happens. For a large portion of the meal, you are hungrier than you were before you started eating. Um, so there's all these hormonal factors that regulate this. And as you put it, what you end up with is, is just a, a process of flipping the causality in obesity. And you always have to think, and I'm always having conversations with people where they're arguing, well, you know, there's certainly there's all kinds of psychological factors in mind, you know, that are involved. For instance, um, you know, I get stressed, I eat more. I get happy, I eat more. I get unhappy, I eat more. But among the things that are happening, for instance, if you got stressed and ate more fat and protein, so you went to the refrigerator and had a piece of, you know, ribeye instead of, um, potato chips or pasta, then even though you were stressed, you wouldn't get fatter. That's the argument. And then you ask the question, why is it that when you get stressed, the foods you want, you know, comfort foods are always rich in carbohydrates and usually sugars, and it turns out that 
Stress hormones also have an effect on fat tissue, on fat cells. And in some ways they're similar to insulin and they work in uh, collaboration with insulin in some ways. And so you could argue that it's the effect of the stress hormones on the fat tissue that in turn makes you crave the carbohydrate-rich comfort food that calms you down. But the behavior in this sense is always an effect or you know, our, our no hypothesis assumption going in is that the behavior is a response to a change in the physiological state of the body, not a driver of that physiological state. Yeah, well, let me take uh, a couple examples here to bring in a little of the economics. Uh, first, I just, I'm sure it's, uh, our listeners have noticed that, uh, that there was a failure to pay attention to Austrian scientists and researchers after, um, World War II, which uh, is, of course, true in economics as well. Uh, this program has an Austrian flavor because of my deep interest in the work of Friedrich Hayek. But the other well, thought... interesting. If, you, have you, if you've ever read um, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee's brilliant book, The Emperor of All Maladies, no. and you know, I'm a passive-aggressive competitive science journalist, so I don't <laughs> like to call anyone's book brilliant if I can avoid it, but it's... It's really a remarkable book, and it's a history of cancer and cancer research, and this theme just keeps repeating itself with research done in Europe, usually by Germans and Austrians in the 1920s. It just gets ignored and or forgotten in part because of the disruption that Europe goes through with the war and then is finally reconstituted in the U.S., you know, in the 50s, 60s, even 1970s in some cases. Uh, it's also a bias against German accents, probably. I mean, F.A. Well, Hi- cert- Hayek's um, video presence uh, is, is not easy to access because he's, he's not as articulate as John Maynard Keynes. So what can you do? Yeah, right. and it's certainly true. In I talk about this in, in the obesity field. The leading uh, American expert on obesity post, uh, World War II was Jean Maillier, who was a French emigre. He had fought in the French resistance, and he simply refused to reference the German research in any of his books. And one of his colleagues told me that he said, oh yeah, Jean Maillier, he hated the Germans. He killed quite a few of them. <laughs> and you know, my metaphor is, imagine if in physics, instead of embracing these European researchers, because we had atomic bombs to build and cold wars to fight. <laughs> Imagine if they said, we don't care what that Heisenberg fellow had to say, or Bohr, or Planck, or Einstein. Yeah. You know, what could they tell us? We don't like their accents. We fought a war against them. We don't like their politics. We don't like their attitude. And so we're going to ignore everything they did. And this is what happened in medicine and public health. So the other example I want to mention is this uh, causation being reversed. One of the strangest things to me uh, is this belief that spending creates prosperity, when in fact I think causation is reversed. It is prosperity that allows spending, but because they happen at the same time, we've come to believe that by spending money with each other, we can somehow um, stimulate economic activity and productivity, when I think what we really want to do is stimulate productivity, and that allows us to spend and have a nice standard of living. Um, now, the other examples that you give in the book that are so provocative, besides the growing child, I want to go through a couple more of those before we get to some of the um, uh, 
I want to challenge some of your arguments, but I want to go through some of the metaphors first. You, you talk about a remarkable experiment. The ovaries are removed on one set of rats and not on the others. And uh, what happens and how um, we could have misinterpreted that. Talk, talk about about that, that example. Well, this is one. This was one of the seminal examples that I came upon in my research, where I began to have my um, my paradigm shifted. And this was research done at the University of Massachusetts in the mid 1970s by a fellow named George Wade. And George was only interested in uh, reproduction, and so he was studying the effect of female sex hormones on weight gain and reproduction. And he did these experiments where he took the ovaries remove the ovaries from rats, females obviously, and um, uh, notice that after the surgery they would get what's called hyperphagic. They would get these voracious appetites and they would grow quickly grow obese. And effectively what he was doing was removing the estrogen because if you infused estrogen back into these animals after the surgery, you wouldn't see the hyperphagia and you wouldn't see the obesity. And so he said, and he's telling about these experiments, he said, if you do these experiments, you just do that one experiment, so what you think is removing the estrogen, removing the ovaries, works to make the animal hungry. And then that hunger causes the obesity, right? That eating too much, the hyperphagia. And so you've now confirmed your preconception that eating too much makes people or animals fat. But you could do a second experiment which he did because he's a good scientist. So now he does the same experiment, remove the ovaries, but you don't allow the animals to manifest the hyperphagia. You don't allow them to eat any more than they ever did. So you restrict the amount of food they could eat after the surgery to exactly what they were eating before the surgery. And he said to me, what do you think happens in Socratic mode? And I said, I don't, I don't know. And he said, it turns out the animals get just as fat just as quickly. But in the second case, they're completely sedentary. Actually, their metabolic rate goes down, their body temperature slows down, they expend less energy. And he said, if you only do the second experiment, you would imagine that removing the ovaries, removing the estrogen makes the animal into a couch potato. And they get fat because they expend less energy. But if you do both experiments, what you realize is that removing the estrogen literally makes the animal fatter. Okay? It works on the fat tissue and the regulation of fat tissue to increase the accumulation of fat. If the animal can eat more to compensate, it will, because now it's losing calories into its fat tissue. So if it can eat more, it will. If it can't, if you don't allow it to eat more, you do the second experiment, it just expends less energy. And what was fascinating about this is that you've actually created, with the surgical You've shown in, in an animal model that the behaviors that we associate with obesity, gluttony and sloth, can both be effects of the dysregulation of the fat tissue. And as Wade explained it to me, what estrogen does is it actually suppresses an enzyme on fat cells called lipoprotein lipase, or LPL. And what LPL does is, pull, is simplistically putting it, pulls fat from the bloodstream into whatever cell it happens to be sitting on. So if LPL is on your muscle cell, it pulls um, fat from the bloodstream in and your muscle cells burn it for fuel. If it's on your fat cells, it pulls fat in and your fat cells store it. And estrogen suppresses LPL on the fat cells. You get rid of the estrogen, LPL blossoms on the fat cells and starts pulling in fat as much as it can. And now the body is sort of 
suddenly losing all this fuel into the fat tissue, and so the, it compensates by you get hungry. And as it turns out, insulin does the works opposite to LPL. So insulin, I mean to estrogen. So insulin actually stimulates LPL all the time. And the argument again is, you know, you change the regulation of the fat tissue. You could do it by removing estrogen. You could do it by increasing insulin. The fat tissue is going to start taking fuel. And the way the pre-World War II Germans referred to it is the fat tissue sort of suddenly has its own agenda. <laughs> Just like a tumor has its own agenda. Yeah. It wants to grow and it will take what's necessary from the body to do it, independent of whatever else the body's doing just like a tumor, and then the body has to compensate because it suddenly got this, you know, drain on its system. So if it can eat more, it does. If it can't, it becomes more efficient and gets by with less energy. The cause is a dysregulation of the fat tissue. The effect is energy imbalance, taking in more energy than the body expends. Uh, so it... That's one way to think about it, and I, I struggle to reconcile that way with what I heard you say in other parts of the book. So let, let me bring that out, which is eating less and, and exercising more, ignoring the kind of calories you're eating, the kind of food, This the mainstream view that says the way you get thin is you change uh, – you just have to make sure you're in, you're in, you're in surplus or you're in right. deficit, actually, and then you'll lose weight. Uh, you know, a pound of fat is whatever it is, thirty five hundred calories. Is that what it is? So you just in, you just need theory, to, yeah. so you just need to consume every time for every week that you consume more than you take in and build toward that's thirty five hundred. If you can have your deficit be seven thousand, you lose two pounds, etc. But what you said in the book, and I think most of us in real life understand this quite well, is that. That fails, that strategy fails, not so much because of the science, but because of the behavior. And, of course, the behavior is driven by the science, and maybe that's the source of my confusion. But the way you think about it in the book and the way I think about it in real life is, is that if you're exercising like a fiend and you're dieting on calories like crazy, you're really unhappy. Um, your body's not happy. You're really hungry. And as a result, uh, it's very hard to maintain the strategy. So the strategy is a good strategy. If you can, if you can eat, uh, 1500 pound, uh, 1500 calories a day and, and run 10 miles, you'll start to lose weight, but you just can't, that's not a viable lifestyle over the long run. And that's why it fails. But you also are kind of suggesting it's not just that it fails for that behavioral reason. It fails because it's literally not, uh, you know, scientifically going to going to hold up. Is it, which is it? Well, and what am I confused about here? That's the idea. Is you can argue that the dieting, the, the eating as little as you can, and the exercise are both ways to sort of minimize the carbohydrates in your diet. Okay, so you're trying to lower carbohydrates. So your body, without even thinking about it, you're you're reducing the carbs you're taking in, and you're burning off some of the carbs through exercise. So you're changing your fat to your, you know, the fundamental argument I make is if you want to lose fat or your body wants to gain it, it, it has to change the regulation of the fat tissue. There's a whole suite of forces dominated by insulin that work to store fat in fat tissue. And that balance of forces has to change to get the fat out. Now you can change that to some extent. 
by eating significantly less and exercising, running your 10 miles a day, in large part because you're going to, to reduce the carbohydrates and their driving of insulin, you know, and the effect of insulin on the fat tissue. But now you're also increasing the need for dietary fat and for protein to rebuild the muscle tissue and restock um, fat and protein stores. And when you're done with exercising, your fat tissue actually tries to restock the fat that it gave up because it's still been driven. It's still, you haven't changed significantly this balance of forces post-exercise. So your body's now trying to grow again. Your fat tissue is trying to grow. Your lean tissue wants to restore and repair protein. That's, you know, cells that have been um, broken down by the exercise. And now your body wants the fuel to do it. This, again, very simplistically speaking. So this hunger that you're trying to live with is a result of what you're doing to your, you know, trying to do by forcing your fat tissue and your lean you know, forcing your fat tissue to give up calories, not providing your lean tissue with enough resources to rebuild. Um, and, uh, you know, so you can have an effect, but that effect goes along with the hunger that's in itself a result of these behaviors. Yeah, and by the way, there are people out there and I've, um, who have spent their whole lives doing extreme physical activities from people who work jobs, manual labor, to marathon runners who, despite this, continue to get fatter from year in and year out. And in fact, one of um, the, my largest supporters now is uh, one of the world's leading experts on endurance running, who is himself a marathon runner who gained 40 to 50 pounds over the years despite running you know, five or six marathons a year. And I think just to make an observation again about consuming data and research and studies, et cetera, my first thought in in listening to you make that claim is, but but when I watch the Olympics coming up in in a month or so and I watch the the, the marathon, everybody there isn't just thin, they're frighteningly thin. Uh, Art Devaney, a previous guest on this program, would say they're – uh, dangerously thin or unhealthily thin right. or, or, you know, emaciated. They don't look healthy. He, he argues it's not a healthy thing to, to run long distances at, the, at a constant pace. Uh, but I presume your argument would be that I have a selectivity bias, that I see the, the marathoners who happen to be thin. There are others who are not so thin, but they don't make it into the Olympic trials. So my sample of people who exercise like crazy or are only the ones who are able to run very quickly, and it's therefore not a representative sample. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you could argue that that if we all play enough basketball, we'll become, you know, uh, six foot eight and built like Michael Jordan. Uh, and odds are that won't happen. It's the ones who are six foot eight and built like Michael Jordan who we end up watching on television. Of course, so, Michael, yeah. You, of course, Michael Jordan. Now that he's retired, or Magic Johnson, or others. Uh, who are exercising less than they used to, way more than they once did. Uh, uh, quite likely, but one could argue that if it depends that, that that weight is not due to their increase, their decrease in, in regular exercise, but due to their the foods they've been eating and the effect of those foods on their uh, regulation of their fat tissue. You'd have to look at the data, but let me ask a related question to that. Uh, 
I actually, it's hard to believe for those who know me now, I actually ran a marathon and finished it in 1976. It's a long time ago, okay? I, I concede that. But when I was a semi-serious runner, uh, what I was told to do was, was carbohydrate loading. So before the race, I skipped carbohydrates and went heavy protein for, for a few days. And I think the night before the race, I ate a pound of pasta. Um, I think many athletes are, are told these, this, that, that carbohydrates are, are energy producers. And so what I, I assume that many world-class athletes are, are eating a lot of carbs. And of course, many well, of them, this is, is that not true? Probably. And this is one of the things that actually drove the acceptance of the high-carb diet when we were younger. Um, we're within a year of each other. And you know, back when I grew up in the 60s, pasta was something you had once a week. Right. And uh, Thursday night was pasta night. And then by the 1980s, you're all making pasta every night and ordering pasta out every night. And every time you had a dinner party, pasta was what you would serve because that's what was easy to cook. No, it's because, part of the trans- it's because Italians are happy. And so we wanted yeah. to get a little causal problem there. But <laughs> yeah, well, that, that could do it also. But part of it was driven by this, the, the marathon boom, the yeah, exercise boom, no this idea about carb loading. Energy, yeah, energy, energy. And one of the fascinating things was this idea carb loading was developed by Scandinavian exercise physiologists, as I understand it, for, um, for cross-country skiers, uh, Olympic-level cross-country skiers. And these people would train all year round on, on very low-carbohydrate diets. Um, and then they would carb load before the race to maximize the amount of glycogen they could get into their muscles, which, you know, glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrates, and it can be beneficial for a lot of endurance activities and actually shorter form burst activities like uh, sprinting. Um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, if, and this gets us into a different uh, area of discussion entirely, but if you adapt your body entirely to the state of ketosis where you're burning only dietary fat and you're getting, in effect, no carbohydrates in your diet, um, you can do really rather remarkable feats of physical activity. I mean, I have a colleague who uh, is now, he eats once a day. He eats dinner, about 3,000 calories. It's no carbohydrates, no um, uh, carbs except what's in the green vegetables. And he's now capable of doing a 90-minute weight uh, workout followed by, for instance, a 70 mile run the morning after eating not 70 mile run 70 mile bicycle race oh, phew. without eating <laughs> uh-huh. and then he still won't eat until dinner the next day i mean i think he's a little bit obsessive but um he's in effect adapted to the state of ketosis and even if you've got say six eight percent body fat which is very lean you still have enough fat on your body to well let's say if you're 100 60 pounds at 6% body fat, that's, oh, geez, nine pounds of yeah, fat. Yeah. So that's nine times 3,500 is what about 32,000, yeah. 31,000 calories worth of fat to burn? Yeah, that's plenty there. That's a lot of exercise. Yeah. Uh, that'll fuel. So, you know, one of the, if we make progress with the argument we're making that it's the carbohydrates and the diet that are the problem, we are making progress. But if 
part of this transformation. And the exercise physiologist I mentioned who runs marathons is a uh, South African researcher named Tim Noakes. He's the author of the book, The Lore of Running. And Tim is now doing experiments with ketogenic diets on endurance athletes, triathletes, marathon runners, to see how their performance changes when their bodies are running exclusively on fatty acids and ketones instead of glycogen and glucose. So, so I'm going to make a confession now to to you and the audience, and uh, of which they're actually pretty aware. You're less, you're going to be less so aware, but I'll let you know and how it, this confession informs my um, my questions, which is that starting back in September of last year, I decided to change my diet and and start exercising regularly. And and what the way I changed my diet is during the week I basically have no carbohydrates. I have some on the weekends, but a, a moderate amount. Uh, and I've cut out all sugar, all um, starches, and et cetera. And I lost about uh, 20 pounds. Uh, and it's bounced around a little bit around that 20. It's It's gone down to maybe 15 at one point, and now it's about 17 or 18. But I've kept it off for about 10 months, which is a long time for me and, and very encouraging. Um, and I want to believe this theory is true because it, it seems like a good theory. I love the, the contrarian aspect to it. So I want to give one more metaphor uh, that you use in the book to, to let you explain. And then I'm going to challenge it, even though I do have this this deep desire to believe everything you say, Gary. So I have to temper, temper that a little bit. And when I tweeted that I was going to be interviewing you, people warned me that I need to be careful for, for my own confirmation bias, which I, I'm pretty... Uh, aware of, but of course, being human, sometimes being aware of it's not sufficient. But anyway, so you give the example in the book, two examples in the book that are both very provocative that seem to confirm uh, the um, your antagonism correctly to the calorie in, calorie out theory. You show uh, photographs of twins as adults uh, filmed, uh, photographed naked, so the, their body types are pretty visible. And uh, one set of twins is very thin. The other set is a large or large and, and obese. And you, you make the argument, it's hard to believe that these two twins were both thin, just both happened to have the same mix of consumption and exercise. Uh, and the, the obese twins, it's hard to believe they had the, they just had a different mix, but the same for each of them. And similarly, you point out, that different kinds of cows, there's some cows that are quite fat and some cows that are quite thin. And it's unlikely that the thin cows get a lot of exercise and watch their calories and the fat cows are um, lazy, watch TV and uh, gorge themselves at the um, ice cream bar. But the problem I have with that, and this is where I'm trying to challenge my own confirmation bias, isn't it equally hard to believe that those twins had the same patterns of carbohydrate consumption? Which makes and the same is true for the cows. So, isn't a huge portion of what we're talking about genetic? And that I look at families where there's a, a thin body type member of the parents and a not so thin one, and they have kids, some of whom are incredibly thin, and some of whom spend their whole life struggling just with their weight. And I'm starting to wonder maybe this whole carb thing is just also wrong. It's just it's just the way I'm born. My body has a certain level of, of heaviness it wants me to have, 
I can fight it for a while, but I can't fight it maybe even for 10 months, but I can't fight it forever. I long for those fries. Um, I ought to, or, or to quote Kingsley Amos, inside every fat person is a fatter person waiting to get out. Um, <laughs> so that's a great line, isn't it? So, so yeah. what's your argument against that genetic argument? Um, well, I don't, the, the reason the twins are in there is that, that uh, obesity has always been known to have a huge genetic component. This was uh, uh, first demonstrated in the 1930s by this, this uh, Austrian researcher, Julius, von ba- uh, Julius Bauer. The, um, yeah, the question is, you could think of it, it's a genotype-phenotype issue. I mean, we have a certain genetic predisposition that gets triggered by the environment. And some of us have an obese phenotype or a diabetic phenotype, and some of us don't. And those of us who do, you ask the question, what is it? What's the trigger? We know there's an environmental trigger because, first of all, the obesity epidemic and the diabetes epidemic tells us that. You know, the numbers have gone up dramatically in 40 years, 50 years, and that's not enough time for our genetic code to have changed in any significant way. For sure. So, so something has changed in the environment that's triggered the obese phenotype in more individuals. And then you could just look at other species and say, why is it that humans are the only ones who grow chronically obese? So there are hibernators and migrators that put on enormous amounts of fat to, you know, to migrate or hibernate or to get through the winters, but they don't become... You know, they don't get this the metabolic abnormalities that go with it. They don't become sick. You mean, you have to just make a small correction there because you haven't seen my cat. Uh, I, you mean animals in the wild. Animals in the no, wild. Right. Okay, very good point. Um, so, uh, and even, you know, elephants, hippopotami, uh, whales that have huge amounts of, actually elephants, I gather, are not all that fat. A lot of that is just muscle, but... The animals that do acquire fat, they don't, they're not chronically diseased with it. They don't get heart disease, diabetes, because they're fat. They're just, fat is part of their defense mechanisms to survive in their environment. With us, we get this chronic, this obesity is a disease thing. Why? What is triggering it? And so obviously, we all have different predispositions to this. And one of the arguments I've been making, I didn't make it in the book, but you know, I think back to when we were kids. 19, late 1950s, early 1960s, and there were typically a couple of obese kids, one or two in each year of your school, you know, yep. the, your year in school. I, I was talking to actually a uh, bariatric surgeon from the University of Missouri who described himself to me as the fat kid growing up mm-hmm. back when there was only one. Yeah. And we didn't never thought when you're kids, you don't think of those kids as kids who just eat too much and exercise too little, right? You think of them as people who are different. I'm sure we weren't kind to them. But we didn't think of them as lazy or gluttons. We just thought of them as the fat kids. There was something different about them. And so the question just becomes, what, you know, because we had much less obesity 50 years ago because you can find populations in which obesity didn't exist because we can't find species in the wild that get obese only species you know only humans and our you know pets and farm animals what is it that's triggering that obesity what is it that 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 triggers the obese phenotype and those of us who are you know whose genotype is predisposed to it 
And the rational argument, the, you know, the conventional wisdom is it's too much food available and not enough exercise. And I'm arguing that that's wrong and that the null hypothesis should be the quantity and quality of carbohydrates in the diet. And again, in support of what I'm arguing, until the 1960s, the conventional wisdom was that carbohydrates were inherently fattening. You know, uh, Jean Briat Savarin, uh, Briat Savarin, in 1825 book, The Physiology of Taste, says, look, I've done, had conversations with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fat people, and they're the ones who want to eat the potatoes, the rice, the bread, the sweets, the beer. Um, you know, as late as 1963, I have a quote that I use in both my books from the, one of the two leading British dietitians. First sentence of his article in the British Journal of Nutrition was, every woman knows that carbohydrates are fattening. And actually, when the 1980s came around and the British government started thinking about pushing low-fat diets for heart disease, one of their reports says we're going to have to figure out a way to get people off the you know, to eat more carbohydrates when we've been telling them for the last 20, 30 years to eat less because they're fattening. So the argument I'm making is it should be the null hypothesis. It should be the hypothesis that requires remarkable evidence to throw out, particularly because the biochemistry and physiology supports it completely. And... Then we have this simple fact, as you've experienced, that when you actually do give up the carbs in the diet and replace them with fat, it's, for most of us, it's almost effortless to lose weight, except for the French fries cravings. Yeah, and, well, I guess the, other, the, the, the flip side of that, though, is that if you indulge, uh, you start to indulge a little bit, and then a little bit becomes a little bit more, um, your body gets very excited <laughs> about the arrival of those carbs and right. because, well, that's, I'm considered a hardliner on this because I'm, I suspect for most of us it's easier not to eat any carbohydrates than it is to eat them in moderation. Oh, absolutely. That's why yeah, um, it's, it's easier to do zero of something than a little bit. Uh, it's somewhat yeah, ironic. There's something ironic about that, I suppose, but maybe not. I think everybody understands that. Um, well, that I used to be a smoker, and if I tried to do what you do with carbohydrates with smoking, like I'm only going to smoke on weekends, I might have been able to do it, but the weekdays would be torture. Yeah, I don't find it hard, um, but I'm not so sure it's good for me. I think there's some evidence that this kind of um, on and off is not so good for you. Um, yeah. But I want to come back to the twins. So I've got these really skinny twins. They're they're grown-ups now. They're, they grew up... Right. To, uh, perhaps together. I don't know if they grew up in the same house or not. As I think they probably did. And there's one set that's really skinny, and they're both, both twins are very skinny. And then there's one set that's really obese, and both are really obese. Are you suggesting that, that the, the obese twins had the, the, the predilec- twins had the predilection towards obesity and then just carved out? And if uh, if they well, had- I'm saying they, they both lived in an environment where carbohydrates were available um, and a consistent part of the diet, and it triggered obesity in the obese twins, not in the lean twins. And then it's not necessarily one-to-one correspondence. Like if I eat 55% of my diet from carbs and 15% from sugar, um, and my twin eats 57% 
carbs and 17% total calories of sugar, that twin is going to be 2% heavier. You know, that's, not uh, true. that's a kind of simplistic way to think about it. Oh, I, I've seen those kinds of analyses in the literature with populations where because you don't have a one-to-one correspondence between carbohydrate availability or sugar consumption, sugar availability and weight in the populations, therefore this refutes the hypothesis. Well, let me ask But you- I'm saying if both of them live in a carb-free, a carb-rich environment, they're both eating from it, they will end up with effectively the same obese bodies. And the, the lean twins who aren't, who can tolerate the carbs will, you know, will, will t- tolerate it equally well, even if they have subtle differences in how much they consume. So to take another weakness of mine, uh, a donut. Uh, very hard for me to eat, say, oh, half a donut. Uh, I'm more likely to have four. Uh, so... And yet, it seems to me there are some people who can take it or leave it, donuts. Um, well, and there are others more like me who have struggled to eat a half and are more likely to eat three or four once they get started, especially if there's a tray of them. Um, and you don't have to go through the trouble of or, you know, ordering them. And you know, my brother has, has the argument, you know, you should eat one potato chip, put the bag up on a top shelf – very far away. So if you can have another one, but you just have to impose some some cost on yourself. Uh, and this is I used to do this with cigarettes when I smoked. Sure. I actually kept my pack four blocks away. Yeah, there you go. Shared it with the fellow at the at the liquor store where I bought the cigarettes. This was in Santa Monica, California, and every time I wanted to smoke, I had to walk four blocks to get a cigarette. Um, of course it you, worked fine within reason. Yeah, of course, sometimes you find yourself sprinting, not walking. But, <laughs> but, but to go back, go back to the twins, are, are you suggesting that I – mean, we can think of different hypotheses. One hypothesis is they just didn't eat – the thin twins just didn't eat a lot of donuts growing up and still don't. Or they eat a lot of donuts as much as anybody maybe, but their bodies process donuts differently. Or uh, they're a type of person that doesn't have a craving for donuts, doesn't get triggered by the first bite as much, and therefore they, you know, they can't gain weight if they want to. Um, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because, again, the second and third possibilities are related. So if that donut affects fat accumulation through the hormones that regulate it, then it will also affect craving. So the person who doesn't have a craving could easily be the person I would argue is the person whose body doesn't want to store calories as fat even when consuming a donut. Yeah. Now, if that person ate a donut every day for the next 10 years anyway, that might, you know, have an effect. I would argue it would have an effect on the regulation of the fat tissue. So 10 years from now, they might find they're addicted to donuts and they weigh 20 pounds more, but it happened more subtly. Um you know, again, the argument I'm making is that the physiology will tend to drive behavior. So someone whose body is triggered to store fat by these foods is also going to crave those foods. Yeah. Um, the Which, person, you know, for the twins, they could both have grown up in the same environment. They could both have eaten the donuts. You know, one of the situations, I mean, there are variations in this. Like my wife is capable of ordering a dessert at a restaurant, having one bite and being perfectly content. And if I have one bite of that food, that dessert then t- 
takes over my existence. Me too. You know, yeah, that's uh, yeah. Yeah, you know the thing. You're yeah. having the dialogue in your head about, okay, when can I have the other bite? Should I have the other bite? Should I just eat the whole damn thing and get it over with? <laughs> can I get the, you know, the waitress over here to clear it before yeah, exactly. things get out of hand? No, all about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just bring you know, two or three. I, yeah. You know, same. Um, it's somehow related to what my body, to the effect that food has on my body. That's the argument, or anyone's body. So if you're predisposed to store fat, then you are going to, you know, it's going to happen because the carbs in your diet, and particularly the sweets, are going to have an effect on insulin signaling and probably this hormone leptin and other hormones, and that's going to start to get your fat tissue growing, and as it does, your body's going to respond by wanting more of these particular foods. Um, simultaneously, if someone's not, somebody might burn off the carbs easily. And so, you know, a Lance Armstrong or a Michael Phelps who can eat 15 donuts and might crave those donuts just as much as you, you do, but in that case, their body is going to partition that fuel into you know, being oxidized in the in the um, in the muscle cells, and they're going to work out for three hours after they eat their donuts. Whereas I'm going to just take a nap for three hours after eating donuts. There's a lot of variables involved, for sure. And it's one of the things that makes this so hard to study. Yes, just like e- just like economics, uh, because just uh, yeah, yeah, you can imagine doing a study where you say, okay, let's feed people. 3,000 calories. This is one of the studies. I've recently, with a colleague, Dr. Peter Atia, we've started a not-for-profit called the Nutrition Science Initiative. We have support from a Houston philanthropist to fund research that we think will help clear up these controversies with the help of the obesity researchers. And it's all very exciting. It's happening so fast. We don't even have a website up yet. Um, but we start talking about what experiments to do and which experiments have been done in the past that tried to assess this. So often people would say, okay, let's feed obese individuals 1,700 calories of diet. One will be low carbohydrates and one will be low fat. But now what they've done is, aside from assuming off the get-go that you have to eat less, you have to eat as little as 1,700 calories to lose weight, they've removed hunger from the equation by not letting their subjects eat any more than 1,700 calories. So now, even if one group is much hungrier than the other, say the low-carb group loses weight effortlessly, but the low-fat group, and as does the low-fat group, but the low-fat group is hungry, it doesn't matter because they can't eat more. They're not given any more. So that's really not a valid experiment. But another way to do it, actually the way we want to do it, is to set calories high. So... We believe if you feed them both, say, 3,000 calories a day, you'll be able to see the difference between these two paradigms of weight regulation will, will manifest itself. That's the regime in which you can demonstrate a difference between um, total calories consumed and the macronutrient content of the diet. But now one of the problems is you're ignoring satiety. Yeah. So you're by fixing calories at all high. Now you're fixing. You're saying we don't care if you're satiated at seventeen hundred calories. We want you to eat three thousand. So that could be problematic if we allow them to eat as much as they want. 
This would work for animals to some extent, but for humans, we'll start getting what are called intervention effects, where these were using obese subjects who want to lose weight. That's why they've entered the study. Yeah, it's a problem. So they might decide to eat less and be hungry all the time because they want to lose weight. Yeah. So now we're not going to see the full physiological effect of the diet, and these are the kinds of issues we have to work out. And they have to be thought through very carefully because if they're not, you could get the wrong answer, even with a study that's otherwise very meticulously planned and carried out. Yes, it it would not be the first time that a meticulously planned and careful study ran afoul of um, selectivity bias, um, countervailing things you didn't control for. It's a huge challenge. Uh, Of course, what you really want to do is put uh, sensors on people from birth, follow them through their life so that you know exactly what they ate rather than relying on a survey after the fact of what they ate five years ago, which is unreliable. Um, Weigh them every day and get a massively wonderful data set of every, as long as you had every human being, you'd be fine. But even then, you'd still, you'd only have an observation because unless you can not only put sensors on them, but put sort of shockers on them so you could stimulate one group to correct you, know, you need a control them every group. time they go near a donut yeah. and the other group gets you know gets a very pleasurable sensation every time they go near a ribeye <laughs> yeah and you got you know yeah you hear an yeah, but aria without the inter- you hear an aria when you uh, see the plate of pasta you imagine you're in italy and so you you know that would be one um yeah it's it's hard to do um i i think one of the themes of both your books which i think is um is a deeply appealing and slightly dangerous, but I think um, for an honest person, there's some value there. There is an inevitable tendency to use oneself as a as a sample point, as a data point, right? So if you ask me, uh, which is easier to cut your calorie consumption or cut your carb consumption, I'd say it's carbs. That's much easier to sustain, and so I'm able, I'm more likely to lose weight. And keep it off. Uh, that my attempts in the past to reduce intake to moderate moderate my calorie consumption, even if that's a correct theory, uh, have not worked because I can't sustain it. Whereas the carbs has a chance of being sustained. Zero carbs does not uh, has a similar problem, I think. Um, so, so well, I'm not arguing for zero carbs, except in the, 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 the again. There's a lot of the arguments kind of get uh, confused along the way. What I'm arguing is that for some obese individuals, some type 2 diabetics, um, zero carbs may be necessary to restore them to some form, near zero carbs, uh, or, you know, in effect, animal products and green leafy vegetables and nothing else may be necessary to get them to a state of sort of near metabolic health. And that there are gradations of metabolic desert, disturbance, metabolic disease, and the, the you know the more subtle your diseases, the less carb restriction you need, the less you know the more refined grains and sugars you can eat. Um, although I think everyone would benefit from getting rid of sugars. Um, and then for the the series of 250, 300 pounders of type two diabetics, they're, 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 that's a different problem, or it's a far greater problem and it requires a far more serious intervention. And this isn't a one-size-fits-all, hey, let's give everybody some whole grains, fruits, and vegetables because we think it's a healthy diet 
and we don't care if it's only a healthy diet for a subset of the population and for that other subset, it may be better than what they've been eating, but it's not good enough. It's not severe enough to redress their, their health problems. Yeah, although I have to say I'm, I'm uh, the economist in me that looks at trade-offs um, reminds me, I think about the, I just happened to watch the movie Michael with my children, uh, the story of, it's John Travolta film. It's a really pleasant and delightful scene in there where they order two kinds of pie, of every kind of pie on the menu, and they, they sit around and they're really happy. It's a really great scene, and Andy McDowell, who's not my favorite actress, but she's pretty good in this, uh, sings a song about pie, and there's a great aura of of love in the room. And, and there's a scene later, or before, I can't remember, where, where Michael, who's possibly an angel we don't know in the movie, but if he's real or not, but he... He turns to the dog he's been hanging out with and says, you know, you can never get enough sugar. Um, and it's a metaphor for the sweetness of life. But it is interesting how um, food is more than just things that make us fat and thin. And, and um, No, that's true. But I'm going to give you a counter metaphor. Yeah, go ahead. I used to be a smoker. Okay. Yep. Smoked. First cigarette after, you know, upon waking up, cigarette after breakfast, cigarette during work, cigarette on the morning, you know, the, the, the walk to the gym, cigarette after the gym, cigarette after meals, cigarette in between courses, cigarettes hmm. after courses, cigarette after sex, of course. Um, when you're a smoker, or this is probably true of any drug, you can't imagine life without it. All pleasures are integrated through this cloud of cigarette smoke and nicotine. Um, I couldn't even, I lived in Paris off and on for two years in the mid-80s. And I, after I quit smoking, I couldn't imagine returning to Paris, my favorite city in the world, because what you do in Paris is smoke and stroll, smoke and shop, smoke and eat, <laughs> sit in cafes and smoke. Sure. Cigarettes are joy when you are a smoker. Just as food is joy or sugar is joy, um, and the interesting thing is when you try to quit sick smoking, it, there's three weeks where you crave it constantly, then the, those sort of constant cravings fade, and then it's just this kind of longing and you're mildly depressed all the time because cigarettes really did mediate much of the joy you have in life. And then after a year or two, that passes. And after three or four years, you can't imagine ever having smoked and certainly can't imagine doing it again. And I would argue the same thing happens with the joys of sweets if you give yourself the chance. The problem is sugar is so much more integrated into our lives and into our foods that you, it's almost impossible to ever get to that place where it's just not consumed. And then fruits have sugars, berries have sugars. So you're still, um, you never get to the state where you're just not a sugar eater, although yeah. I know people who have certainly tried, and I would argue maybe a few people succeed. But I, I am a big believer in the need for joy in life. And um, what I used to get from the bread pudding at Hal's Restaurant on Abbott Kinney in Venice, I could now get from the steak, if I lived in New York, at Peter Luger's, <laughs> that I feel I would be able to eat without thinking I was killing myself. 
yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There are substitutes. There are, there are substitutes. There are substitutes. Um, and there's a lot to be said for eggs and bacon in the morning if you don't believe you're killing yourself. And if you do, or if you are killing yourself, then at least you get a lot of good breakfast before you go. Yeah, well, that's, that's the issue. I mean, a lot of people, uh, I, I would just mention that uh, although beer is not on my diet anymore, other other forms of, of um, uh, alcohol are, are relatively low carb. Um, so there are other kinds of joy, and as you point out, steak, etc. Of course, the complexity here is that all these effects are, as you say, mitigated through genetics and life and all kinds of individual differences. And we know lots of people who eat lots of potato chips who live long, healthy lives, and lots of people who eat lots of steaks and live long, healthy lives. And we just don't know so much about what it'll do for us um, well, that's, but that's true. And again, this is, you know, getting back to cigarettes, uh, only some 10% of smokers get lung cancer. Right. But we know that cigarettes cause lung cancer. The people who do get lung cancer, some 80 to 90% get it because they were smokers. Um, I'm arguing the same thing with obesity. And then the other question to keep in mind, and this, you know, often you get this thought about this, these very low-carb, high-fat diets are too restrictive. You know, my, my doctors will tell me this. My patients are not going to do this. And my counterargument is if your patient's a type 2 diabetic or obese and he or she knew that they could be healthy, you know, not have to take insulin, not have to take their statin, not have to take this drug and the hypertension drug, you know, the blood pressure drugs, and that all it required was making this transition, this dietary transition, akin to a smoker quitting smoking or a alcoholic giving up alcohol, which are not easy things to do, but that you could, if their patients knew they could be healthy. And there are clinical trials suggesting that a large proportion of type 2 diabetics could be drug-free if they didn't eat these carbohydrates. How many of them would be willing to make the effort? You know, how many of us would trade off? Like you and I were talking 20, 30 extra pounds. We're not pre-diabetic. We weren't becoming pre, at least I don't think so, you yeah, know. I'm with um, there's a lot to be said for being healthy, and I think a lot of us will make the sacrifice if we really had the faith that, that by doing so we would could and would be healthy. Well, the other thing I would add is that um, I feel I've gotten, since I've, cut out sugar and, and starches and carbs of that kind that I have more energy and it's probably just psychological, but it's working for me. So, you know, Hey, that's good enough. Yeah. Well, that's the, um, the yeah, I, I could be fooling myself. I could be fooling myself, but it's, if, if it is, it's working. Um, we're, it, we're, we're going long here, it, but I just want to ask you one more question. Uh, you are, um, you're a journalist, uh, you're a journalist who works in science uh, you're very aware of uh, groupthink. You're very aware of the problems of confirmation bias. And you've accused others, and I think correctly, of, of making terrible errors in, in scientific judgment because of their failure to avoid these problems. But now you've become a crusader uh, of sort, and you've got a new religion. You've rejected the old. You've got a new one. And as I said earlier, I'd love to think that's it's the true religion. But it, you do put yourself at risk of being prone to confirmation bias and and making the mistakes that you've accused others of. How do, you, how do you keep that from happening? How do you, surely others have accused you just as you've accused them of ignoring evidence on the other side. Uh, do you think you're guilty of that? 
sometimes? And if not, I think how do you avoid yeah, it? obviously. Um, you know, on some level, it, and it very, it's a very uh, seditious problem. I mean, the, the you, know, you look at a paper, two, two papers come out, one of them supports your viewpoint, the other one doesn't, and so you read the other one very closely to get find out why you don't believe it. Yep. You might spend an hour doing it, and the one that agrees with you, you go, <laughs> this is great. You, you read the it, beginning yeah. and the discussion, and that's the end of it. Um, one of the arguments that I've been making is, you know, we all come with bias. You can't know scientists is bias-free. I have a bias that, as I said, this should be the null hypothesis. And once I phrase it like that, it gives me the opportunity to say, you know, I need remarkable evidence to refute it. Okay, so this uh, poorly designed free living study isn't good enough. Rat studies, you know, we could demonstrate anything with rats. We just yep. got to find whatever species of rat we decide. So you can come up with a lot of reasons to dis- to uh, ignore evidence that seems contradictory. Is you know the the nature of science isn't every paper that comes out is right. Every result is right. Every interpretation is right. The huge amount of chaff out there, and then we all get to choose what we think is the wheat. Yeah. Ultimately, it's a scientific question, though, and I, I, like to, I believe that every book I've written is as much about good science and bad science as it, as it is about the subject. Yeah. My first book, I watched physicists at, at CERN, the huge European physics lab, discover non-existent elementary particles. <laughs> My second book, I documented the scientific fiasco called Fusion, and then I moved into public health and ended up writing two books about nutrition. I, they're all basically the same book. Yeah. The difference in nutrition is that there was this alternative hypothesis that kept getting passed over or swept under the rug that seemed obvi- that the obviously should be the null hypothesis. And I just dragged it out and said, let's just look at this. And now... You know, one of the arguments I'm making is let's do the best science we can. Because in all these fields, the one thing that was, you know, the one thing I could, I could state definitively about nutrition, chronic disease, public health research, is because of the problem of doing human experiments, the cost, the complexity, the fact that you've got, like, real free-living human beings involved who can think for themselves, it's excruciatingly hard to do the science at a standard necessary rigorously, meticulously enough to get a reliable answer. And so one of the things I've said we've done is I've actually, we've actually co-founded, founded a, a, a non-profit that's going to fund research. And we've put together, we're putting together a consortium of people who we think are the best scientists in obesity and chronic disease research to help design and oversee the experiments. And then, it's funny, I'm the one who's always saying, look, you know, we might find that the conventional wisdom was right all along, at which point I better find a shoe store that's willing to hire me as a salesman, because that's what I did in high school, and I might still be able to do it. But it ultimately comes down to, you get a hypothesis, people either decide the hypothesis is viable or not. In this case, you can test it on yourself on an N of 1, which gives you an advantage over most other hypotheses. But ultimately, I've been arguing, let's just do good science. Let's do the kinds of studies that people think these answers were settled in the 60s, and they weren't, not even close. So let's do what should have been done in the 1960s, and hopefully with, with the uh, 
Yeah, we have some uh, philanthropic benefactors behind us. We hope to get more, and it looks like we're going to be able to raise enough money to actually answer these questions definitively. But ultimately, that's what we need. It's just really meticulous, rigorous science, and it can be done, and I think it will be done. My guest today has been Gary Taubes. His book is Why We Get Fat. Gary, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Russ, thank you for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.